0: Hello everyone, my name is Nancy Porter and I am happy to share Time Magazine with you this time. This will be from the May 8th to 15th issue that we'll start with and uh, I must remind you that you are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on AIRS LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers and no unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. We start with the Earth Awards of 2023, honoring individuals influencing the future of the planet through their work on climate justice, awareness, and activism. This is from the Time May 8th to 15th issue. Time's mission is to tell the stories of the world's most influential individuals and to recognize their contributions to life on this planet. And there is perhaps no greater form of influence today than working to combat the climate crisis, an imperative that has long animated Time's coverage of the problem. Time is launching the Earth Awards to recognize leading figures in the most important work there is, There are five of them this year. First up, Mark Ruffalo and Gloria Walton, believing that clean energy can increase racial equity. Ruffalo is an actor, producer, and co-founder of the Solutions Project, and Walton is a writer, organizer, and CEO of the Solutions Project. Powerful stories of frontline communities' climate solutions can change the world. When you're trying to persuade people to do something important, you can present statistics, policy statements, graphs, and spreadsheets. But without a story that paints a picture of what's at stake, touches the heartstrings, and sparks the imagination to envision possibilities, it's hard to move people to take action. One formula for accelerating transformational change is to amplify the right message from the right messenger at the right moment in time we can often feel powerless when it comes to taking action whether because those abusing power contribute to the feeling of helplessness or the doomsday approach common in some climate storytelling creates crippling anxiety but when we think change is impossible we stop trying but when humans tell their stories we see ourselves in them and that gives us something to fight for Listen to the story of Naleli Kobo, a young activist and 2022 Time 100 Next honoree who grew up near an active oil rig in Los Angeles, battling cancer, illness, and loss, and it's hard to turn away. When she tells you that after years of organizing with her community, the city council finally voted to stop oil drilling, you can feel the power of her story. We, at the Solutions Project, believe in the power of storytelling. Specifically, storytelling from communities of color and low-income communities that are hit first and worst by climate change, pollution, and other effects of our dirty energy economy. These frontline communities are creating practical, replicable solutions to the climate crisis. What do frontline climate solutions look like in America today? A Latino community organization in Brooklyn helps develop New York City's first community-owned solar power project and successfully campaigns to transform an industrial waterfront into a wind energy hub that will power 1.3 million homes and create 13,000 local jobs. Members of the Navajo Nation install solar power systems to bring electricity to off-the-grid indigenous families and their homes. A black church in South Carolina deploys solar-powered hydropanels that turn air into clean drinking water for communities that don't have safe tap water. Storytelling is often about the power to proclaim values, define visions, and shape the dominant narrative. When community members tell their own stories, they are accurately portrayed not as victims, but as the victors and visionaries they really are. And their stories allow everyone to reimagine what an equitable and sustainable future looks like. They help us channel our fear and rage toward taking positive action. It's heartening that we're now seeing Hollywood accelerate these stories through a drumbeat of movies and shows with climate themes from the 2016 film Moana to this year's Apple TV Plus series titled Extrapolations to the Black Panther films. A film cannot change the world if the world isn't ready for it. A movie doesn't come out of nowhere. It is often rooted in social and cultural moments. As more filmmakers, television producers, and writers take on these issues, It's clear that our society is is open to new ways of approaching the climate crisis. And as frontline climate communities know from experience, all of us, just like the residents of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, are the heroes and sheroes we've been waiting for. This is our moment. The solutions are right in front of us. We have all the energy and technology needed right here on the surface of the Earth. If we invest our resources in our communities, we could ensure that all of us have access to green spaces, healthy foods, health care, and clean air. With record amounts of federal money beginning to flow toward climate solutions, this is our best chance yet to jumpstart a rapid transition to a more just, equitable, sustainable world, And that would be a story for the ages. Alright, the next one is Lisa P. Jackson, a green apple. Apple revolutionized consumer technology. Now it's focused on the climate crisis. For the company's head of environment, policy and social initiatives, Lisa P. Jackson, this requires the same kind of innovation and integrity that we bring to our products. After leading the Environmental Protection Agency from 2009 to 2013 under President Barack Obama, Jackson joined Apple. Her decade of work there is something that I will put up there in my career right up alongside my time in government service and my 25 years in public service, she says. I'm really proud. Jackson has steered the company to carbon neutrality across its global corporate operations pushed for suppliers to use renewable energy, and spearheaded its racial equity and justice initiative. She is currently working toward carbon neutrality across Apple's entire business and supply chain by 2030. That means reducing the fossil fuels used to produce Apple products, grappling with the environmental harm caused by extracting essential metals, and prioritizing recycling components when devices are thrown away and using recycled materials to build shiny new ones. Using 40% recycled materials in the MacBook Air with an M2 chip, for instance, cut its emission impact by 30%. A lot is involved. Consider the efforts to make the iPhone more sustainable. And this was written by Kyla Mandel with reporting by Justice Worland. The next uh, recipient is Vanessa Nikate, climate justice activist and 2021 Time 100 Next Honoree. Her Climate Activism Advice Column. Vanessa Nikate grew up in Kampala, the capital of Uganda. In 2019, at the age of 22, she began to realize how deeply climate change was affecting her country and launched what has developed into one of the world's most impactful youth-led moments for climate justice. Among other things, her movement has founded the Africa-based Rise Up and has served as a Sustainable Development Goals young leader at the United Nations. Her leadership, poise, and clear-eyed approach to climate change make her uniquely qualified to answer some of the most pressing concerns we have on what we can all do to alleviate the problem at hand. She gave her take on Time's questions about how the climate crisis affects our personal lives. How do you deal with friends or family members who downplay the seriousness of climate change? In Uganda, everyone knows that the climate is changing. Those in towns and cities see it in the increasing frequency of flash floods. Those in the countryside know that the weather they once relied upon to grow crops is becoming more unpredictable and extreme. People often don't attribute this to man-made greenhouse gas emissions, but we are all experiencing this rapid shift in some way or another. A few years ago, my Uncle Charles told me about the difficulties Ugandan farmers were experiencing with changing rainfall patterns. That conversation made me interested in doing more research on climate change. It was kind of the beginning of my activism. Once you know the facts, it can be frustrating to speak to people who are not there yet. For in much human wisdom is much vexation when people are not aware of what you know. But I would suggest trying to find the common ground, because most people understand that something is changing, that our world is becoming more and more unstable, or that our air is being polluted by fossil fuels. From there, education can help us understand the crisis and the solutions we need to address it. If I were to take a year off and commit my time to climate action, what should I do? Where could I have the most impact? The kinds of responses we need vary greatly, but they all add up to something that looks like systemic change. For example, spend a year working with an activist group, perhaps organizing people in their community to oppose a new gas power station. Or campaigning for your city to invest more in public transport. Or fundraise to bring local renewable energy to disadvantaged communities. You can even do both at once. No action is too small to make a difference. I want to see the world, but I hate the jet plane emissions. What should I do about traveling? Some people think that youth climate activists like to tell people what they should or should not do. In fact, when we do activism, we are usually telling politicians and business leaders that they need to make it easier for people to live in a sustainable way. For decades, they have been warned about the climate crisis, but they have refused to act. Instead, they have given more and more subsidies to polluting industries. It would be very difficult in our current system to travel the world without using high-emissions transport, though sometimes the best adventures can happen merely a bus ride away. What are your tips for managing climate anxiety? Well, it can be tough to think about the climate crisis every day. Personally, I find that my Christian faith helps keep me going. This trust in God gives me the foundation that allows me to hope for a better world. I also remember who we are fighting for, the people whose lives are already very difficult and who now face more and more risks because of the climate crisis. In East Africa, millions are currently on the brink of starvation because of an unprecedented five failed rainy seasons in the region. Last September, with UNICEF, I visited Turkana in Kenya, one of the areas worst affected by the drought. I met mothers who had to take their children to a hospital treating the worst cases of severe acute malnutrition. One of the children I met there died a few hours after I visited. I am fighting for these children and many millions more that are at risk of suffering like this. That is what keeps me going. What do you think about the trend of people saying they don't want to have biological children because doing so would add to the climate challenge while also bringing people into a potentially catastrophic world? I would say that we need to have hope and the expectation of something good. Without hope, the world would not be a place worth living in. There has been some climate progress, but not nearly enough and it can seem sometimes feel like the movement is failing how do you deal with failure and where do we go from here many times the media report progress on climate change as a victory for activists of course this portrayal is absurd in reality emissions reductions are a victory for literally all life on earth similarly The fact that we have not made enough progress is not a failure for the movement. It's a failure of our societies, politics, and mostly it's a failure of those with the power to change things who have chosen not to. But we cannot give up. Everything we can do to decrease emissions matters, because every fraction of a degree of warming increases the length of droughts the strength of hurricanes, and the intensity of heat waves. Our responses must improve. That means protests must get bigger, and all institutions with power must be held to account. But most of all, it means politicians, business leaders, the media, and those with influential platforms must wake up and do all they can do. What's your favorite book or movie on climate change? I find inspiration from the work of Wangari Mathai, a Kenyan environmental activist who who founded the Green Belt Movement and won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2004. Her work is explained in her book, The Green Belt Movement. Wangari is a role model that I and many other young female environmental activists look up to in East Africa. She understood the interconnectedness of many of our social and ecological problems, as well as the power of nature to heal and transform people's lives. The Green Belt Movement combined the fight against deforestation with the fight for women's empowerment by working with women in Kenya to plant trees and protect forests. The projects, as well as protecting nature, focused on real improvements that could be made to the lives of ordinary people. She is a climate justice activist and a 2021 Time 100 next. And the next one, Antonio Gutierrez. He is Secretary General of the United Nations. A letter to my granddaughter's granddaughter. My dear great-great-granddaughter, I wish I could be with you here as you open this letter in the year 2100. My mind is flooded with curiosity about your life, your hopes and dreams, and what kind of world is outside your window. But I must confess, I am fixed on one question— will you open this letter in a spirit of happiness and gratitude or with disappointment and anger at my generation as i write to you in 2023 humanity is losing the fight of our lives the battle against climate upheaval that threatens our whole planet if i were with you now you might ask if we saw this disaster coming yes we did We are making a mess of our planet through bottomless greed, timid action, and an addiction to fossil fuels that is driving temperatures to unlivable new highs around the world every year. Scientists, civil society, the United Nations, and most inspiring of all, young people, have led the charge for climate action, but too many leaders have failed to step up. Today our world stands at a crossroads with two paths before us that will have a direct impact on your future. The first crossroad leads to a future of relentless temperature rise, deadly droughts and famines, melting glaciers and rising seas, communities ravaged and erased by floods and wildfires. Extinction and biodiversity lost on an epic scale. In short, a trail of destruction. The second path leads to the legacy you deserve. Breathable air, better health, sustainable food systems, clean water, and robust circular economies. A future powered by renewable energy and high-quality green jobs. I am determined that humanity follows this second path. We have the information we need. We have the tools and technology. What we need is the political will to forge a peace pact with nature and transform how we grow food, use land, fuel transport, and power economies. Wealthy countries must help Less wealthy ones cut carbon emissions and make huge investments in renewable energy and the protection of vulnerable communities. Of course, even if we take all these actions, our climate will still change in dramatic fashion by the time you are born. But we can limit the damage and provide every country and community with ways to adapt and become more resilient. A future with only 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, of global warming may not deliver us to climate heaven, but it will save us from climate hell. So which plan did your generation take? My dear great-great-granddaughter, by the time you open this letter, you will have your answer. You will know whether we succeeded or failed in our fight for your future. You are decades from birth, but I already hear you. The central question from you and all humanity both haunts and motivates me. What did you do to save our planet and our future when you had the chance? I will not relent in making sure my generation answers that essential call. I will stand for climate action, climate justice, and the better, more peaceful and sustainable world you and all generations deserve. Signed, your great-great-great-great-grandfather, Antonio Gutierrez. All right, we move now to the May 22nd to 28th, 2023 issue. And this is from the section titled, The View, Headline. Our COVID-19 Lessons by Kismaria Corbett, a Time Next honoree and assistant professor at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. More than three years into the COVID pandemic and with America's public health emergency expiring on May 11th, it is clear that this moment is an opportunity not only to reflect on successes, but also to grapple with the setbacks, pitfalls, and failures that defined our response. The responsibility to improve our response to future health crises lies in correcting our failures in this one. I was a senior researcher at the National Institutes of Health, leading a team that developed a COVID-19 vaccine. As I review our fight against the virus, from the front row of the front line, three paths of action stand out. First, the government needs to change the paradigm that defines the focus of federal research, with an emphasis on being proactive instead of reactive. There are 23 families of viruses associated with human infection. And the state of the research into each of these families varies significantly. In my specialty of coronaviruses, we had made significant strides before the pandemic struck. The strides we made were not because of an ex- extraordinary funding streams, but merely because we were interested in closing gaps in scientific understanding particularly in light of the recent threats posed by SARS-1 and MERS, which showed the pandemic potential of coronaviruses. It is often deemed miraculous that our COVID-19 vaccine progressed to a Phase 1 clinical trial in merely 66 days. But the process could have been even more efficient had our technology gone into Phase 1 clinical trial before the pandemic. Basking in our success means admitting that we were dealt a lucky hand. The pandemic response could have been way worse. Our understanding of many of these viral families lags far behind our understanding of coronaviruses. If a pathogen from one of those ever takes off, our wait to clinical trial might be 600 days, not. 66 days. I'd like to see us invest in each of the 23 viral families that infect humans. The National Institutes of Health should lay out checkpoints, key scientific milestones we need to hit for each viral family, so we're ready to move rapidly in case a pathogen emerges and begins to spread. The investment would be significant, but the total cost would be far smaller than COVID-19's estimated $16 trillion drag on America's economy and the enormous toll of lives lost. Second, public health practitioners need to recognize that our research is only as good as our communication. Even our strongest peer-reviewed, evidence-driven findings won't have their full impact if we cannot clearly and effectively communicate them to the public. Public health communicators must project both their humanity and their expertise, a difficult tightrope in a polarized political environment. Clarity, conciseness, honesty, and empathy go a long way with the public, especially in moments of uncertainty. Public health leaders must also recognize that sometimes the messenger is just as important as the message instead of relying heavily on leadership in dc we must tap into trusted voices in communities across this country from physicians to community health workers to pharmacists once appropriately empowered these community leaders made a big difference during the pandemic. I'd like to see us build a strong network that lets officials at the White House and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention promptly share relevant public health information with local leaders on a regular basis, not just during a crisis. And finally, We must understand that health leaders cannot solve these crises alone. We have to work in partnership with the public. As a result, we must step up our efforts to teach critical thinking in schools and workplaces, so when people do their own research, they come to reasonable conclusions. This problem has become more challenging in recent years with the flood of content on social media. Much is misinformed, and some is even maliciously and knowingly false. We need to help people learn how to separate fact from fiction. That will help us triumph over the snake oil salesmen who use confusion to spread lies. These changes aren't easy. Each would be expensive, time-consuming, and difficult to implement. But we have seen the consequences of a pandemic under the previous status quo, and we cannot allow ourselves to settle back into that flawed approach. The second article: "As Police Forces Shrink, Private Security Takes Over," by Alana Samuels, in North Philadelphia. Andre Boyer enters at the gas station like a soldier. Back straight, boots shined, AR-15 pointed toward the floor. He seems unaware of the flutter of anxiety spreading through the store. But if anyone asked, which they don't, he would assure them that he's there for their own good. We're not here to beat people up, says Boyer, who heads S-I-T-E, a private protection agency, that is patrolling gas stations and hotels in Philadelphia at the behest of store owners. We're here to let the public know that they can feel safe. Boyer's armed guard service has boomed over the past year as Philadelphia police staffing issues led to longer response times. Neil Patel, who owns the gas station, hired Boyer in December after thieves stole an ATM machine and the police did not respond for six hours. Across the country, police departments that already were struggling to recruit new applicants saw a spike in retirements and a drop-off in new recruits after the 2020 murder of George Floyd and subsequent backlash against police, says Chuck Wexler, the executive director of the Police Executive Research Forum. The number of sworn officers dropped seven percent, from 2009 to 2021 nationwide, according to FBI data. Meanwhile, crime was rising in many parts of America. Murders, assaults, and car thefts rose nationally in 2020, according to the Brennan Center for Justice, and first responders found themselves busy confronting crises, such as homelessness and opioids. These factors bolstered a private security industry that had already been growing steadily since the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. Since 2020, it's soared. Today, there are roughly twice as many security guards employed in the U.S. as there were 20 years ago, according to the Security Industry Association, though the nation's population has grown only 16% over the same time period. By 2021, there were about two police officers, but a 3.1 security guard for every 1,000 residents. Private security is going to take over everything, says Boyer. He adds that a father recently hired him to take his two children to the movies, armed with a shotgun, to make sure they were safe. The rise of private security is both driven by income inequality Wealthy people have more things to protect and money to spend to protect them, and exacerbates it. For every Neil Patel who spends $750 a day for round-the-clock armed guards, there are thousands of business owners and civilians who have to make do with what their taxes can buy. The Los Angeles Police Department is not meeting its staffing needs, for instance, but the city's neighbor, Tony Beverly Hills California, California, Beverly Hills, California, has hired two security firms to patrol the city in cars or on foot as an extension of the police, says Todd Johnson, CEO of the Beverly Hills Chamber of Commerce. We want to make sure that the luxury capital of the world is also one of the safest places, Johnson says. As a personal note, I can add that I live in a community called Valley Circle Estates in Woodland Hills, California, which is in the valley right across the hill from Beverly Hills. And we had one of those named security services called Covered Six. Unfortunately, Beverly Hills lured them away to be one of their uh. Um, uh, extra their extension of the police force because Beverly Hills being richer than we are could afford to pay them more so now we have a different private security firm but while we had covered six we sure enjoyed them because yes they were all licensed to carry all right continuing with the reading private security has been a presence in America for centuries Pinkerton, a private security company founded by immigrant Alan Pinkerton around 1850, is well known for its claims to have foiled an 1861 plot to murder President-elect Abraham Lincoln. But the industry has changed dramatically since then. Today it's dominated by massive conglomerates like Allied Universal and Garda World. Pinkerton is now a subsidiary of Securitas AB which has 358,000 employees in 45 markets. Allied Universal, the world's largest security company, became America's third largest employer in 2021, behind only Amazon and Walmart, when it acquired G4S, another security company. The security industry is so consolidated because it's a very low-margin business, says Michael Field, an analyst with Morningstar. Clients are not willing to pay high wages for someone who is mostly there to deter crime. Private security guards are typically instructed to call police if there's an incident and who don't actually produce revenue for their business. With such low margins, many companies have to keep costs down. They do that by paying service industry wages and by staffing even high crime areas with only one guard, says Rick McCann, the founder of Private Officer International, an association for security officers that tracks trends in the industry. While law enforcement officers make an average of $70,000 a year nationally, security guards only make about half that. The way the security industry operates is what I call the McDonald's model. They don't sell quality, they sell quantity, says McCann. The big companies that dominate the market often hire lots of people at once, assuming that turnover will be high, he says. One casualty of that approach may be adequate vetting and training. 21 states don't require any amount of training for unarmed security officers, according to the National Association of Security Companies. Even in states with requirements, enforcement is difficult because there are so many guards spread out across so many locations and states lack staffing to enforce the rules. The rapid rate of hiring is proving dangerous. In the past few months alone, a private security guard at a Miami Metro rail station allegedly shot and killed a rider in what was reported to be a dispute. A guard at a New York City Walgreens punched an alleged shoplifter and then was arrested for assault. And police say that a security guard shot a patron of a Baltimore pizza shop after an altercation. In the past decade, 309 security officers have been arrested for manslaughter or murder while on duty, according to McCann. The unregulated boom in security isn't just dangerous for the general public, it's also dangerous for the guards, who are risking their personal safety by showing up at work. While a few years ago a security guard stationed at a retail store might be there just to deter minor shoplifting, today, those guards have to deal with organized retail crime. Guards may be told that their job is just to act as a deterrent, but they find themselves in situations where customers are looking to them for protection. McCann estimates that there are 13,000 assaults on security officers annually, and that of the 145 security officers who die on duty in an average year, 85% of those are actually murdered. I've had gun lasers and guns pointed at me. I've had a boulder thrown through my rear window. I've had a guy admit to pistol-whipping his wife when I responded to a noise complaint, said Brandon Muse, who was a security guard for Allied Universal in Sacramento for three years, all for $16 an hour. Allied said in a statement provided to Time magazine, that it investigates the causes of all incidents and, quote, takes appropriate action to limit the possibility of similar situations reoccurring, end quote. Ostensibly, security guards are hired to make people feel safer. But understandably, some civilians feel uneasy around the increased presence of guns and guards who are largely unregulated. Because the laws regulating private security vary from state to state, there's a gray area where neither guards, their employers, nor the public knows exactly what a private security officer can and cannot do on the job. Though many security companies will say that their employees act only as a deterrent, others have a different take. Boyer, the Philadelphia guard, says that if someone steals from the gas station where he works, The law allows him to go after that person to retrieve the property. A spokesman from the Pennsylvania State Police disagreed with that. It's true that Patel, the gas station owner, says he hasn't had to report one criminal incident since hiring Boyer's firm. Before then, he says, his store was a constant blur of crime. People stealing and carjacking. One time... His car was vandalized while police were in the store taking down a report about another crime. He is sick of it all. I ask, couldn't an armed guard have escalated those situations and led to someone being killed? Too bad, he says. They deserve it. Then he retreated behind the bulletproof glass shielding his cash register. And our final article for today titled the triumph of king charles after decades of waiting the new monarch meets his moment by tina brown author of the, the palace papers inside the house of windsor as he stood in for his ailing 96 year old mother at the opening of parliament in may 22 it was hard not to catch prince charles gazing mournfully at the imperial crown next to him on a velvet cushion. The irresistible thought bubble his expression suggested was, "Mummy, when? Cue the trumpets. On May 6, 2023, the 74-year-old man, who spent more than five decades in the waiting room of his destiny, longer than any Prince of Wales in history, finally walked through its door. King Charles III, by the grace of God, of the still united kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and of his other realms and territory, head of the Commonwealth and defender of the faith, had placed on his head by the Most Reverend Justin Welby, Archbishop of Canterbury, the nearly five-pound, solid gold St. Edward's crown at Westminster Abbey. Crowned alongside him, was the 75-year-old woman who has herself shown years of shrewd, strategic, patient Queen Camilla. Even the baleful stare of Prince Harry, who blurted late that he would attend the ceremony but without Megan, cannot throw shade on the former mistress's vindication. This was no off-the-rack coronation. A flurry of belabored palace bulletins in the past months about a slimmed-down budget-conscious ceremony suggested an occasion as suffused with mixed messages as the king himself. To whittle the guest list down to 2,000 from the 8,000 hanging from the rafters at his mother's coronation, the cavalcade of ermined dukes was mostly booted in favor of National Health Service and charity workers and other inclusive representatives of of an effortfully modern Britain. The few MPs who made the cut didn't get a plus one, a bitter pill. Princes of the Blood and other grandees were not required to take the knee and swear a Shakespearean oath of fealty. And unlike Queen Elizabeth's bladder-brusting three-hour ceremony, This two-hour, 21st century coronation was not much longer than a Premier League soccer match. Not that the king would have arrived at his coronation in the Diamond Jubilee State coach wearing a lounge suit, nor would much daylight be let into the magic of the anointing, when, like his mother 70 years before him, the king donned an austere, shift-like garment off-camera and was doused from a medieval spoon with consecrated oil. Unlike at Queen Elizabeth's coronation, no civet oil or amber grease from the intestines of sperm whales was added to the formula for the sometimes vegan Charles. Then he slipped out of his sacred mufti into the gold, floor-length super tunica, before emerging in the pièce de résistance of the Deep Purple Robe of Estate or Imperial Robe. If it all threatened to be irresistibly Monty Python, so what? The potent flummery of the monarchy still holds the British people in its thrall. It is meant to be a never-ending story, and the months since Charles's ascension have been a seamless rebrand of the House of Windsor as an institution built to survive. A recent BBC YouGov poll found that 58% of Brits support the monarchy. Charles's reign began with his pitch-perfect address to the nation after Elizabeth's death. Ten days later, striding at the head of her funeral procession, bearing his field marshal's baton, he seemed to grow in stature with each metronomic step. For most of his life, Charles was tortured by his father, Prince Philip's underestimation of his gifts and the Queen's remote mothering. But in this critical moment of transition, it all fell away. On his face, you could see both the pain of losing his mother and the final shedding of his childhood's doubting burdens. The benefit of his eternal weight is that Charles has become king at a moment that uniquely speaks to his concerns. For decades, he was mocked for his jerrymides about climate change and the despoilment of the English countryside. Now, as the world self-immolates and glaciers melt, Even his most merciless critics acknowledge his prescience. His people know exactly who he is. Charles the Green, a woke grandpa with a complexion pinker by the minute, who drives an Aston Martin fueled by a bioethanol blend of cheese and English white wine byproducts, and who assuaged his grief in the Queen's last hours by foraging for mushrooms in the Balmoral woods. At a time of divisiveness and volatility, it's a kingly image that is quickly reassuring. Charles has defied every prediction of what would happen when a monarch as beloved as his mother dies. There has been no national identity crisis, certainly none attributable to him. No collapse in public appetite for a monarchy, no immediate repudiation yet by the sovereign sovereign Commonwealth realms, and no disregarding of constitutional red lines, as some expected, to sound off about his favoured causes. Yes, then Prime Minister Liz Truss put the kibosh on his attendance at the November COP27 UN Climate Change Conference in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, where he had planned to make a speech. But Charles immediately asserted the puissance of the crown as a political convener. His Buckingham Palace reception for world leaders on the eve of COP turned out to be the most coveted power ticket of the week all the more effective because it stood aloof from white-hot policy debate. It's easy to forget that after decades of of Dullesville Commonwealth tours and ceaseless FaceTimes with an encyclopedia of potentates, Charles is one of the best wired diplomats in the world. His first state visit as king to Germany in March, where he tapped his Hanoverian roots to speak in fluent German, was hailed as a flawless post Brexit charm Krieg. The procession of Charles' progressive instincts has always been undermined by his fogey self presentation. He must have been the only Cambridge undergraduate to wear a suit and tie in the summer of love. Some of his first acts as king have brought refreshing flair to the stodgy iconography of monarchy. The image of himself Charles selected for the nation's postage stamps to replace the crowned head of his mother is a simple one, bareheaded and unadorned. He chose Joni Ive, ex-Apple Design Whiz, to conceive a beautiful, optimistic coronation emblem with the four entwined flowers of the United Kingdom that reflects the king's concern for the planet and he blessed the cool innovation of releasing digital twins of the coronation crowns using augmented reality, a brainchild of Anthony Geffen, producer of the documentary titled The Crown Jewels, that were available on smartphones everywhere. More significantly, Charles' decision to open the Windsor Archives to aid independent research into the British monarchy's ties to slavery is nothing short of revolutionary for an institution that has usually battened down on the past. Some might see Charles's actions as a brilliant stroke of proactive public relations at a time when demands for colonial reparations are part of an ever-rising tide of aggrievement, especially among the young. But in Charleston's case, his earliest speeches show his desire for deep cultural re-examination comes from an authentic place a spokesperson for buckingham palace on april 6th repeated his message to commonwealth leaders in rwanda last year i cannot describe the depths of my personal sorrow at the suffering of so many as i continue to deepen my own understanding of slavery's enduring impact the king is said to be accepting even relaxed about his inevitable removal as head of state in the 14 remaining Commonwealth realms, Elizabeth II, after all, was a master at presiding gracefully over imperial retreat. But unlike his mother, Charles knows that the deep sympathy she expressed in her historic 2011 trip to Ireland would never be enough to expiate some of colonialism's Worst sins. The only serious migraines for Charles in the first months of his reign were caused by his own son. The firm has contained the blast radius of explosions from Harry, the human granite grenade, by following Queen Elizabeth's tested playbook. When faced with tumult, like the publication of his incendiary memoir titled Spare, and the solipsistic whine of Meghan and Harry's Netflix documentary. The royal family has ramped up public appearances and done what they always do, say nothing, and smile, smile, smile. With a certain amount of backstage mirth, the palace released the statement expressing the king's disappointment that Meghan would be staying in Montecito, California, with his grandchildren. Harry, nonetheless, managed to grab the spotlight yet again when he galloped back on his steed in late March to appear in a London courtroom for the latest round in the tabloid phone hacking cases. Revelations about what seemed to be covered up complicity between his own family and the tabloids ensures that each brother is still ready to raise an army against the other. And what of Queen Camilla? Palace insiders believe her success is even more assured than the king's. Hers is one of the greatest image rehabs in modern history. In the 18 years since she married Charles, her performance has been so sure-footed that the woman reviled as an old bag, old trout, prune, and hatchet face in the 90s, by the tabloids for usurping the adored Princess Diana, is now on her way, at least in the now-unfoldingly and uniformly glowing press coverage, to becoming a British national treasure, the Maggie Smith of the monarchy. Camilla's loyalty, humor, and humanity, her stoic commitment, like her late mother-in-law's, to just getting on with it, has proved she understands the quintessential tenet of monarchy, how to play the long game. Vivat Rex, at a time when everything seems to be bollocksed up in Britain, sometimes spectacularly, tribal and antivistic beliefs in the monarchy, both mortal and majestic, somehow trundle on. And that is my coverage from Time Magazine for the May 8th to 15th and the May 22 to 28th, 23 issue. I need to remind you again that you are list- you have been listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are. The copyright property of the original authors and publishers, and no unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Again, I'm Nancy Porter, and it has been my pleasure to share Time magazine with you.